Amen, amen. We're going to take your seat. Let me invite you to get your Bibles out and turn uh, to Psalm 42. That's where we're going to be this morning, Psalm 42. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just take a moment to thank uh, the various brothers who uh, filled the pulpit here over these last uh, handful of weeks. Yeah, I think that's great. <clears throat> So Eric Anderson and Chris Risk and Pastor Brian, uh, you know what, we've we got a deep bench at this church, right? For this small church in Rio Rancho, there's a deep bench of, of gifted and capable and faithful uh, Bible preachers. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, I trust that you're thankful for that. Here's my encouragement, church. Uh, if you're thankful for that, then find a way to tell those guys uh, how the Lord used uh, their teaching, how the Lord used their, their work and their effort and their ministry uh, in preaching the word to you. Here's a little secret. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Preaching's hard. It's hard. Uh, and so for other brothers to get in there and, and to, to shoulder the load uh, would be a great gift to encourage them in the various ways uh, that God used them in your life. Uh, but I, I get to jump back in and the mantle falls to me uh, this week. And so we're in Psalm, actually Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And I'm going to begin by asking what is maybe kind of an odd question to start a sermon with, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, how many of you talk to yourself? Raise your hand if you talk to yourself. Okay, good. Good participation. I was afraid I was going to have to call out liars. I know you all talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves. Um, but, but the reason that I ask that is this psalm, you're, you're going to see some of that unfolding uh, in this very psalm, this, this notion of talking to ourselves. And when you think about that, that, there's a variety of reasons and a variety of times and places that we might talk to ourselves. Maybe we're trying to, to work something out in our mind, or maybe we're trying to convince ourselves of something, or some of you might be like, I don't know about you, but the smartest person I ever talked to is myself, so I just want to be mentally stimulated in some of this. But this psalmist, what's going on here, is there's this tension, right, this tension between uh, what, what he knows to be true of God, what he knows to be true of God's promises, and yet he, he, he sees all of that over here, and yet when he looks at life, what he sees is this. He sees the discouragements and he sees the disappointments and the frustrations. And so he's trying to convince himself this is still true of God, even though this is what I'm witnessing and seeing. And so God's word is really going to give us uh, the opportunity to, to, to live in that space. How do we walk? How do we navigate those spaces and places where we're discouraged and we're disappointed? And yet we want to have this unwavering hope and trust in God. In fact, here's the main idea of where God's word is going to lead us this morning. It's this idea right here, that in difficult or disappointing circumstances, we will choose to hope in God. Let me say that again. In difficult or disappointing circumstances, we will choose to hope in God. That regardless of what God brings our way, regardless of what God chooses to entrust to us in our lives, that we're going to find our hope in Him. And so we're going to read, or in a moment I'll read Psalm 42 and 43, and you might be saying, Mike, why, why are you doing two psalms? Uh, here's the short answer, because they go together, that's why. Um, and, and if you understand a song, you think about a song, right? We just sang a handful of songs. Songs are typically composed or, 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 or brought together. You have a verse, and then a chorus, and then a second verse, and this, an identical chorus, and maybe a third verse, and that same chorus. And what you're going to see in Psalm 42 and 43 
periods, you're going to actually see three verses, not Bible verses, but three uh, 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 sections that will function as a verse, and then a repeating chorus. And so it's a singular idea or a singular thought, even though it's unfolding over a couple of psalms. So I'm going to read all of Psalm 42 and all of Psalm 43. Loved ones, this is God's word to us. Psalm 42, 1 and following says this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And here we see the beginning, the first of three choruses. Verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43 says this, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I'll go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the liar, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Loved ones, this is God's word, and it will stand true for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to give his eyes to see, and then we'll get into this great text. Pray with me. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, we're so thankful for the ways uh, in which your word speaks your truth into and on and over our lives. And so, Father, we pray in these coming moments as we walk through these couple of psalms that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts uh, to know and understand what it is that you want to do within us this morning. God, maybe for some it's to be reminded, others to be encouraged, maybe others to be sanctified or challenged or convicted or whatever the case may be. But in all these things, God, we're praying that you would accomplish your purposes uh, by and through the Spirit's work, using your word in and through your people. God, as always, we want to pray for the church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for Pastor Stephen Baum and, and for uh, First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque. And we're praying for those brothers and sisters, God, that you'd be doing a good work in them uh, in the same way that we long and desire that you'd be doing a good work in us. And so, God, come and have your way. Come and accomplish your purposes. Come and do the things that only you can do. And we're praying this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. 
Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Hope Amidst Disappointment. Hope Amidst Disappointment. And we as people, right, in difficult or disappointing circumstances, we want to be people who are choosing to hope in God. Now, as, as you look at these couple of psalms, I want to, I want to just highlight a couple things here at the outset uh, that, that, that I think are kind of uh, part of the feel of what's going on in the psalm, but I want to mention them uh, because I think they're going to drive in a variety of, uh, of ways for us. And so two things I just want to highlight right at the outset. First of all, is that there's this sense of nostalgia in the psalm, that the psalmist is recounting life as it used to be, that, that life isn't what it once was. Things have changed, and, and it doesn't necessarily seem like it's changed for the better. So there's this sense of nostalgia there. But additionally, there's also this element of exile, right? The, the psalmist is, is as exiled or banished uh, from Jerusalem, um, which means that he is absent or separated from the very presence of God. And that, that'll become a really prominent part of this here as we get into the, the back half of 42. But as you think about both of those items, as you think about that sense of kind of nostalgia and the way that it used to be, and then as you think about this sense of exile, my sense is most, if not all of us, resonate with at least one of those, if not possibly both of those. That, that, that at some level, we might find ourselves feeling like, man, life just isn't like it used to be. Or, or, or this sense of, I, I feel more socially ostracized and exiled and, and pushed out and pushed away. And so what God's Word is going to do for us this morning is it's going to offer a pathway where you and I get to live in the tension of what's unfolding in Psalm 42 and 43. Right In one sense, where the psalmist is going to give voice to his frustration and his disappointment and what's discouraging to him. But then on the other side of that, that he's able to readily identify God's faithfulness and God's presence and God's provision in his life. And that tension of how they play together. And so for us... Part of how we want to come at this is we want to be people who live in hope. We want to be people of hope, even though your life may very well be surrounded or enshrouded with all kinds of difficulty and disappointment. So hope amidst disappointment, right? In di disappointing or difficult circumstances, we will choose to hope in God. So how do we do that? Well, let's get into the text, and it's going to unfold that for us. Here's the first uh, of, of each. We're going to look at each of the verses of the song, not verse 1, verse too, but each verse of the song being sung in Psalm 42 and 43. And so verse 1 tells us this, and it's this, that if we're going to be people of hope, that we must desperately long for God. That we desperately long for God. That's what we see in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 42. That we desperately long for God. If we're going to be people of hope, we've got to long for God. Here's what he says. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And so the first aspect of this desperately longing for God that comes out of the text is this, is that God alone is the one who satisfies our thirst. That God alone is the one who's going to satisfy your thirst. And he gives this illustration of a deer, right, panting for water in the wilderness and, and, and unable to find water and the thirst that comes with it. Now this probably goes without saying, but I'm guessing all of you understand that deer are not camels. 
Right? Anyone confused on that? I didn't think so. Okay, but here's why I say that. Right? Because camels are designed to go really, really long time without water. Right? That, that's why they live in the Sahara and places like that, because they just they go a long, long time without water. You know who's not designed to go a really long time without water? Deer. You know who else is not uh, designed to go very long without water? You and I. Right? So this is something that, that we can resonate with. This is something that's accessible to us. And I think, if anything, meant man, living in the southwest we get it like we know what it's like to, for it to be hot and dry and there's no water this week's kind of a bad example but most weeks here right we know what it's like for it to just be hot and dry have you ever had that experience where you've been really thirsty I'm talking cotton mouth, parched. I couldn't articulate words if I had to thirsty. Who's been there? You ever been there? And then if you've ever been in that situation, did you, at that same time, was water not available to you? Right, because it's one thing to just be like a fool working in the yard and you just choose not to drink. Okay, it's another thing when you're out in the wilderness and all of a sudden you, you realize how thirsty you are and you, you don't have water, you don't have access to water. So I grew up in northern Arizona in Flagstaff, so one of my favorite things is to hike the Grand Canyon. I've um, done that a number of times. I've only done a solo trip, uh, and so when I say a trip, I'll hike down to the river and back up same day. That's something we like to do. Uh, and so one time did it alone, and for a variety of different reasons, probably about a mile and a half before I got to the top, I was out of water. Now on this particular trail, there's water at the bottom, there's water at the top, that's it. And it's hot, and you're tired, and every step, right, reminded of just how thirsty you are. So when I got to the top, I'll just say I looked a little ridiculous at the drinking fountain. Okay, because why? Because I was thirsty. And you know what was going to satisfy my thirst? Only one thing. Water was the only thing that was going to satisfy my thirst. And see, this is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, listen, God, my soul is panting for you. There's nothing else that's going to satisfy my soul. There's nothing else that's going to satisfy my thirst. I'm desperate, and you're the only thing. You're the only thing that can satisfy my thirst. Loved one, here's my question for you. Do you understand? Do you understand the depth of the thirst that is within us for God? Think of it like this. In the same way that if you were to go without water for a little bit of time and you would become keenly aware of its absence, if you were to go any length of time apart from God, would you also become aware of his absence and your need and your thirst? Would it be obvious? Would it be clear? Or would it be lost to you? Right, that God alone is the one who satisfies our thirst. But here's the problem. Right, here's the problem for so many of us. It, it, it's not that I need to convince you that you're thirsty. We all know that, right? Our bodies tell us that. Our, our souls tell us that in a variety of ways. No one needs to be convinced that, that we're thirsty. The problem for so many of us is that we attempt to quench our thirst with other items or other aspects or other things. And we attempt to do it with things that could never truly satisfy us. Right, this is what Jeremiah talks about in, in Jeremiah chapter 2 when he says the people of God have forsaken me and they've hewed out cisterns that hold no water. Right, a cistern is like, it's like a well. It's meant to hold water. Now, could you imagine dipping your bucket and, and there's no water, but all you pull up is sand. It's like, hey, take a drink. Like, that, that ain't gonna, that's just going to make it worse. Why don't we drink muddy water when fresh mountain stream water is available to us in the person of God? The things of the world can't satisfy or quench your thirst. It's only the person of God that's going to satisfy your thirst. 
We desperately long for God. God alone satisfies our thirst. God, help us that we would understand that. But notice also this, right? Our longing is not only in, in the satisfaction we find in God, but notice also this at the, the back half of verse 2 through verse 4, that God alone is our source of joy. That God alone is our source of joy. Now, now there's what we see beginning in the back half of verse 2. This is part of the tension that begins to unfold in the psalm. Right? So in one sense, I can identify the goodness of God, the necessity of God. But then on the other side, I'm, I'm wrestling with these disappointing and hard, difficult things in my life. And so there's this tension and this toggling of going back and forth. And so he can identify God's goodness in verse 1 and 2. But notice what he says here in the back half of verse 2 and verse 3. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Right, not in Jerusalem, exiled, banished. And then he says this, yeah, I'm thirsty. Here's, here's, what, here's the only thing I have to satisfy my thirst. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Or that my tears, that's what satisfies my, my thirst. My tears reminding me that, that, that something's off, reminding me that, that, that something doesn't seem to be right. This frustration, this honest expression of frustration here. And really, this is an, an unflinchingly honest moment for the psalmist, isn't it? It's incredibly authentic and real. And, and here's, here's what i got to say. I, I don't know about you, church, but when I come to, to parts like this in the Bible, I just find myself being really, really thankful for, for moments like this and examples like this in the Bible. Because I think most of us can relate to the tension of verses 1 through 3. Right? Like in one sense, like, oh, I'm so thirsty for you, God, and I just cry a lot and life's hard, right? Like this back and forth tension. I mean, could you, how demoralizing and how depressing would it be if we opened our Bibles as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my pants soul, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and that's all that I ever drink of because I only and always choose God and I am never seduced into choosing anything else and I always and only choose righteousness and I've never sinned in my life and I always respond to my spouse with grace and I always love my kids well and I never fail to share the gospel and I don't ever struggle with sin. I don't know about you. I'd read that and I'd just be like, I'm unregenerate. I got no hope. Like, I'm, I'm utterly lost. And yet what the Bible's full of is what? Broken, fallen sinners living in a broken, fallen world. Right? So praise God. Praise God for just the, this unflinchingly honest moment in the Bible. And so here's this man, right, living in this honest tension. And, and, and in one sense, I, I'm longing for God. But, but here's the difficulty. Now look at where he goes in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. Okay, what are you remembering? Well, look at what he says next. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now, the sons of Korah, that's, that's who writes this. The sons of Korah, they were like the equivalent of Old Testament worship pastors. Right? So he misses getting to lead the people in worship at the temple. And he misses the festivals. And he misses these opportunities. And so maybe he's thinking of Passover and the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Weeks and uh, other things of that nature. But don't, don't, don't confuse what's going on here. Because even the feasts and even the leading of the worship and all the, that's still peripheral to the deeper longing within him which is that he misses God. The psalmist misses God. 
And so listen to me, church, listen. True spirituality, you want to talk about true spirituality. True spirituality is not that you and I adhere to religious practices. It's not that we demonstrate some level of righteousness. It's not that that, that we uh, rise to some competency in our theology. Okay, true spirituality is revealed in a longing and a desire and a craving for the person of God. Not the things of God, not the benefits of God, not the blessing of God, but that we love God himself. That is true spirituality. We love him But too often, too often we settle for cheap substitutes and lame imitations. That's why C.S. Lewis talks about we'll we'll settle for mud pies in a slum instead of an offer of a holiday at the sea because we're too easily pleased. I'll settle for far less than the person of God himself. I'll just take one of the benefits of God. It's like, oh, that's enough. And it's like, no, God himself's over here. Right, that our our source of joy, God alone is our source of joy. In fact, Augustine uh, said this, he said, You, speaking of God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Right, that, that, that God is, he, he's the source of our joy. And yet, what do we do? We hold out some hope that some comfort, some luxury, some experience, some amount of money, or whatever it is, is going to somehow bring joy in our life. So could, could we just, let's just settle this once and for all. Logic, I, I, mean, I understand uh, as fallen sinners, we're going to wrestle with this till the day that we die. Okay, but logically, let's just put this to death once and for all. So here's the question. What is the greatest most valuable entity you could ever possess. Think about that for a minute. Like what would be the most valuable, greatest, grandest, uh, most enormous thing? So here, let's start walking down the road. How about a big old mansion? 10,000 square feet of just enormous, over-the-top, maybe gold-rimmed toilet seats, right? And just all the ridiculous things you find in huge homes like that. And you're like, okay, okay, I'm going there. But listen, listen, you can have your mansion because I want mine to float. So I'm going to get a yacht, right? And, and then I can travel the seas and go to different places. If you've been watching the news lately, yachts are, that's kind of old hat. The cool thing now is to go to space. So maybe you're going to get a mansion in a spaceship, right? And up you go. And we could go on and on with the ridiculousness. Again, what is the greatest? What is the most valuable entity that you and I could ever possess? Are you ready for it? Here it is. It is communion with God. It's the greatest thing you could ever possess. That's the greatest thing you could ever have. So like, only a fool goes, oh, I've got this really great thing. Now I want to go pursue this junky thing. It's like, what? you got the best right here. And yet this is what we do, right? We want cheap substitutes. We, we, we want fraud imitations. Loved one, do you love, long for God? Are you panting for God? Is your gladness and your joy tied up in him or are you seeking for it somewhere else? See, if we're going to be people of hope, if we're going to be people who live in hope, and we're going to be people who can live in hope even amidst disappointment, we have to desperately long for God. 
Now, verse 5 is the first of three choruses that we see. Um, we're going to come back and deal with the choruses at the end. Here's one thing I'll just note real quick before we move on uh, to verse 6 through 11. Just note this, that you see the tension of disappointment and the provision of God in this text. Right? So in one sense, here's the disappointment. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then here, being able to identify uh, the provision and presence and work of God, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And here he is, right, trying to talk to himself, trying to convince himself, uh, once again, trying to come back to, no, I know this is true of God, even though I'm seeing all these other things. I'm, I'm going to hold out hope. And so the psalmist continues, right, hope amidst disappointment, not only that we desperately long for God, but look at verses 6 through 11. Here's the second thing, and it's that we actively remember God. That we actively remember God. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Right? He's like, I, I'm cast down, so I, I'm going to remember God. Now, now in the Bible, you talk about, right, often for us, when we think about remembering, it tends to have more of a casual uh, and passive sense to it, right? So you can hear a song, and it takes you back to a particular time in your life or a particular memory. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Or you, you smell certain foods um, or, or, or certain smells, and they take you back to different places. But that's far more passive. See, in the Bible, when you see the word remember in the Bible, when people in the Bible are, are remembering, it's a far more intentional and deliberate choice where they're thinking and considering and reflecting upon the truth of God. And so if we're going to be people who live in hope amidst disappointment, we've got to get good at this. We've got to be intentional about this. We have to be people who actively remember. And here's what I want you to notice. This is not happening when life is good for the psalmist. Right? Things are not all just playing out swimmingly for him. In fact, what you're going to see in the next few verses is things are actually quite difficult. And so we actively remember God two ways, two, two items I want you to see here in the text. Here's the first, look at verse 6 and 7. And it's this, that we remember God in chaos. That we remember God in chaos. And so he tells us, my, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. And then probably, if we're just being honest, the rest of verse 6 and verse 7 probably doesn't read like, oh, I see chaos in that. Right? We see some place names, Jordan, Herman, Mount Mizar, and then some stuff about water. You're like, what, 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 where do you see chaos in that? Well, let me try to explain. First of all, when you look at the end of verse 6, you see three places that are mentioned. You see Jordan, uh, Herman, and Mount Mizar. Those places geographically were on the edge of Israel. This is the edge of the promised land. And so what most scholars believe is that this psalm was actually written by uh, someone who was, who was being taken into exile. Right? So as they were being taken into exile, that they're in this mountain range and they're looking back to Jerusalem. And they can't see Jerusalem, but they can see uh, just the outline of the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And they know once I go over this mountain ridge, I won't be able to see that anymore. And so there's this final look back. I don't know if you have places like that in your life, or, or as you leave, sometimes you, you, you look of what's back behind you. Growing up in Flagstaff, uh, Arizona, the San Francisco peaks there, that's the highest point in Arizona. Uh, that, 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 that's an iconic thing in my mind, right? That, that just screams to me. And so every time we come back home and we get on I-40, uh, and, and in the, in the rearview mirror, the mountains just dominate for about 60 miles. And then there's always this time where I'll kind of just look back one last time and it's like, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. It's that kind of sense, right, on, on the edge. I, I don't know if I'm going to see you again. And it's possible that it was an exile. But either way, he, he's in the wilderness. He's, he's banished. 
And so there's this, this, this sense of exile, right? Whether it's functionally or, or, or actually true, there's this, this exile sense. And so part of remembering God in chaos is we remember God in exile. That we remember God in exile. Okay, question. How many of you have ever been in another country? Throw your hand. Ever been in another country? Okay, so a number of you uh, know what this is like, even if you've only been there for a few days. What's it like when you first get to another country? It's kind of fun because things are different and it's exciting to see like, oh, that's how they do that. That's kind of cool. Um, and, and oh, that's kind of fun to eat that or not have to eat certain things or uh, whatever it is. Um, and so initially it's really, really fun. But what happens over time? Right, the longer you're there, what begins to happen? You start missing home. Right, you start missing what's, what you're used to. You start missing what's normal. And you're kind of like, oh, I'm kind of getting eager and anxious to go home. And all of a sudden, those items in that foreign place that you thought were fun, now they're just a reminder that you're not home. When someone comes up to you and starts speaking a language, and you're like, I don't understand a word you just said. This is getting old. I just wish people would speak to me and I could understand. Or, or maybe there's certain food that you have to keep eating, and you're like, I can't wait to never eat this again. Or there's other food that, that you miss. And so when Becky and I lived in Vienna, right, world-class city, world-class city, you know what you couldn't find? You couldn't find chocolate chips and you couldn't find cheddar cheese. So you got to, I mean, the country's full of cheese and it's full of chocolate. But there were no chocolate chip cookies because you couldn't have, you, know, you couldn't find chocolate chips. And sometimes you just wanted cheddar cheese. Like sometimes you just want that, right? It's a reminder that, 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 that you're not home. And I say all of this because, listen to me, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're living in a foreign land and you're living in exile right now. And that has nothing to do with the fact that we're in New Mexico. I know this is part of the United States. The rest of the country doesn't. Okay, but I know that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you and I are living in spiritual exile. We are living as foreigners. This is not our home. This is not where our citizenship is found. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3, right? That we're citizens of heaven, not that we're citizens of earth. And what you see actually in the Bible is a theme of exile for God's people. And it starts pretty early on. And it runs all the way to the end. Now, for most of God's people, for most of human history, we have not struggled to put our arms around that. Because most people live in, in parts of the world where they're like, yeah, I'd be happy to move on. Or they live in environments that are hostile to the gospel. So they're like, I'll be happy to move on. But for most of our lifetime in this country, it's been pretty comfortable. You know what's going to get increasingly less comfortable? Being a follower of Jesus in this country. And hear me when I say this, that's not the worst thing. Here's why it's not the worst thing. Because what that will do is it will force us to come to grips with the fact that this isn't home. This is not our eternal home. This is not where we're intended to be for all of time. That something far greater is coming our way. And so here in exile... The psalmist is remembering God. Loved one, in our current state, in your current place, we need to be proactively remembering God, that we're returning to his word, we're returning to his promises, we're returning to his purposes. God, help us, God, help us that we would be doing this. That we remember God in exile. But notice also this, look at verse 7, that we remember God in the overwhelming 
Sorry, so verse 6 talks about Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizar. Verse 7 says this, deep calls to deep. Again, another, another water image being used here. But remember, in Hebrew poetry, water, or particularly the ocean and the deep, is always synonymous with chaos. Right, hence the term we remember God in chaos. Right? Deep calls to deep. There's never a time in Hebrew poetry where we're like, ooh, the ocean's great. No, it's chaotic and it's terrifying. And then he goes on and he drives that point further. And he says, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, sometimes, sometimes we read that and, and what we do in our mind is we've got like this idyllic Hawaiian scene where this gentle waterfall is flowing over and we kind of swim under it. And it's like, oh, this is so refreshing and this is great. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay, to be clear, not even close. In fact, the area where he's at, he's up in the headwaters of the Jordan River and very mountainous, uh, craggy terrain. And so think of these incredibly steep ravines and where the water would rush down through them. So, so take the arroyo uh, the, of, of some of the images you saw of some of the arroyos over the last couple of days. Take one of those, but then put it at like a 20% grade. Anyone want to jump into that? That's what he's talking about. You're like, no, that's terrifying. I don't want anything to do with that. That's exactly what he's describing, right? That we're remembering God and the overwhelming. But again, it's in this moment of difficulty, it's in this moment of, of, of chaos that the psalmist is choosing to remember God. And so there has to be, there has to be something inside of us that, that, that when life is, is, is off kilter, when li life is out of whack, that in the exile, in the overwhelming, that we're choosing to remember God, that we're intentional about it, that we're proactive about it, that we're pursuing it. Let me just ask you, will you, will you choose to remember God in the overwhelming moments of your life? We remember God in the chaos. I notice this secondly. Verse 8 through 10, that we remember God in oppression. That we remember God in oppression. So verse 8, you have this beautiful statement about the, the Lord's steadfast love and the song that God sings over uh, his people. Right By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So in one sense, the psalmist, again, is kind of returning to, okay, here's what I know to be true of God. One note, I'll just make it quickly. Notice that he uses the word Lord here instead of God. For a number of these Psalms, at the beginning of book two in the book of Psalms, they're going to use the word God, which is the more generic name of God, more broad name of God, Elohim. But here in verse eight, he uses the word or the name Yahweh, right? The covenant keeping personal name of God. And of course, he's using that as he's describing uh, the, the personal covenant keeping character and nature of God. And so he's drawing us into God's covenant faithfulness by identifying both God's name but also God's activity but here's the tension he knows it in his head but if you look at verse 9 and 10 I would say he doesn't quite believe it yet in his heart he's not convinced because verse 9 says this I say to God my rock why have you forgotten me why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, right? They're oppressing me. They're taunting me. They're mocking me. And, and notice now, uh, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It was, in verse 3, it was his tears that were saying that. Now it's actual people that are saying that. We remember God in oppression, the tension between voicing our frustration, but also identifying God's presence in our difficult situations. 
Loved ones, if we're going to be people who live in hope, if we're going to be people who live in a state of hope, we must remember, we have to be people who are remembering God in the taunts, in the mockery, in the oppression, in the persecution. And so when you find yourself in that place, when you're taunted, mocked, ridiculed because of your faith and your allegiance in Jesus, just remember what Jesus said. They hated me before they ever hated you. The world hated me before it ever hated you. That's what he says in John 15. So this isn't new. This is what it is to follow Jesus. The pathway for the believer runs through persecution. And so we want to praise God. We We have a God that goes before us on this and leads us through this. But we remember God in oppression. We want to be people who are actively remembering God. Let me just ask a couple of questions here before we move on to Psalm 43. Let me ask you this, first of all, what, what structures, what frameworks, what items do you have in your life, set up in your life to help you remember God? What, what, what items are in place? What, 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 what items are set up so, so that you don't just uh, roll down the road uh, to no end without something that, that pushes you back to a place of remembrance? What, what, what items, uh, maybe it's your quiet time, or maybe it's some kind of accountability, or maybe it's uh, some kind of uh, interaction that you have with someone, whatever it is, what items is going to help stir remembrance in you? I'll give you an example. When I first got here a number of years ago, uh, one of the things that we put on the calendar in multiple places were different prayer times. Do you know why we did that? It's not because I was spiritual. In fact, it's the opposite. I didn't trust myself. I know more than anything that what we need is to be a people that pray. And I didn't trust myself to pray enough. So I'm like, you know what? We're just going to put multiple things on the calendar. And you know what that requires of me? I show up and pray. It's brilliant, right? Because it, because it forces the issue. What are some of the structures that you have in your life that help you to remember? Secondly, ask yourself this. What promise do you need to remember right now? What promise of God do you need to remember? What promise of God is going gonna, is gonna to reshape how you're viewing what's going on in your life? Thirdly, this. What eternal reality needs to frame how you're looking at life right now? Right? What eternal truth do you need to have back in view? And may, may, maybe you need to be reminded, hey, this isn't home. Right? This is foreign land. We're just passing through. We're just aliens here. Maybe for some of you, you've, you've forgotten that persecution is the pathway forward for the believer. That Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, right, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not, it's not new, it's not different, that's normative. We actively remember God. So now let's look at Psalm 43, this final verse in the song. And here's what we see. Here's really what the verse is about. It's this right here, that we confidently trust God's deliverance. That we confidently trust God's deliverance. Now, the voice of the psalmist here gets much firmer, much more confident. um, And and there's this growing and rising sense of God's work. Uh, But again, his situation hasn't changed. His circumstances haven't changed. Uh, There's still a tension. uh, but, But the tension is shifting because his perspective on God is shifting. That we confidently trust God's deliverance here. Let me make note of a few things here for us. First of all, make note of this in verse 1 and 2, that we trust that God is our deliverer. So listen to verse 1 and 2. Listen to the language he uses. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. 
right? These words vindicate and defend and deliver and take refuge. Right, see, so he, he's trusting that God is his deliverer. That's what he's trusting. And that's what we want to trust, that God is our deliverer. So by the time you get to the end of verse 2, he's restating the question from Psalm 42, but he's almost, he, it, it's less of an indictment, but more of an actual question. Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Like, what, why, why am I doing this? Right, which is a fair question. Why? Right, he's trusting God to deliver him from his accusers. Did you hear that? He's trusting God to deliver him from his accusers. Uh, anybody in the room that has a similar scenario unfolding in their life? Anyone else have an accuser that you need to be delivered from and you can't deliver yourself from? Anyone else? Are uh, you starting to see where I'm going with this? Right? Isn't this what's unfolding in the entirety of the spiritual realm as we speak? That Satan accuses us? And, and, and here's the thing, right? Like, Satan's a liar. He'll lie about everything. Satan doesn't have to lie about your sin and my sin. He can just tell the truth about that. Right? No need to lie. No need to fabricate. He can just tell the truth about our sin. And the reality is, because of our sin, loved ones, that we should be subjected to God's wrath. That we should be crushed for our rebellion. But we're not. Why? Because God has sent a deliverer in Jesus the blood of Jesus is shed in our place, is what delivers us from the wrath of God that we deserve. And so will you trust that Jesus is delivering you? Will you trust that he already has delivered you? And when you think about what he delivers you from, there's, there's multiple facets or layers to this, right? Because when we trust Jesus to deliver us, first of all, he delivers us from wrath, that we're not subjected to the punishment, right? We're not going to suffer the consequence that we deserve. But secondly, not only that, we're delivered from being enslaved to sin. You don't have to keep sinning. You're free from that. That's part of what Christ has freed you from. But not only that, but a day is coming when you and I will be freed from the entirety of the curse. We won't even be able to see the effects of the fall around us. Now these first two, right, that, that, that he bears the consequence and that we're not enslaved to sin, that's in play presently, today, right now, and should be in play in our lives. This third one, that, that, that's a future item still to come. And I can't wait for that day when we're freed from the entirety of the curse. But loved ones, that day's not today. So we need to be people who continue to trust that God is our deliverer. Secondly, look at verse 3. He says this, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. See, we trust God sends us out in his truth. And two items I want to highlight just real quick here, looking at verse 3. The first is this, when God delivers and God leads, you and I go forth in confidence. Did you hear that? When God is the one who delivers and God is the one who leads, you and I can go forth in confidence because it doesn't rise and fall with us. It rises and falls with God. And so our confidence is in Him, not in our ability to do the right thing. But notice also this. Look at the back half of verse 3, right? Talking about coming to the holy hill into your dwelling place. When God delivers us, we can come into His presence. See, when God delivers us, we're, we're, we're enabled to come into the very presence of God. 
If you remember a handful of weeks ago, we started the psalm series with Psalm 24. Right? And the question in that psalm is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And you're like, uh, not me. Right? Because the qualifications were fourfold. Right? You got to have clean hands, pure heart, doesn't lift up your soul to what is false or to swear deceitfully. And so you're just like, well, I'm out. It's kind of a bummer, right? And we are out if it depends on us. But when God is the one who delivers, what God does in his delivering of us is that he bestows or grants or confers his righteousness to us. And this is the beauty of the gospel, right? That unrighteous sinners are given, granted, clothed, and covered by the infinite righteousness of Christ. Praise God for that. And so we trust God sends us out in his truth and we get to come into his holy hill and into his dwelling when that's the case. And then finally this, look at verse 4. Here's what it says. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Finally this, that we trust will go with God in joy. And here's what I want you to notice. It's not just that the psalmist has joy. Who's the joy rooted in? Look at your Bibles. Who's it rooted in? Right, to God, my exceeding joy. God is, is, is described as the exceeding joy of the psalmist. And so listen to me, listen to me. This is why, right here, what you're seeing in this text, and we can go to other texts, but it's right here. We don't need to go anywhere else. This is why joy in the Christian life should never be predicated upon our circumstances. It should always, always, always be predicated upon the person of God. So listen to me. Your life can be miserable and you can be filled with joy. Or your uh, life can be incredibly joyful and yet you could be entirely miserable. See, when we make it about our circumstances, then you're on a roller coaster you have no control over. When we make it about our Savior, oh, you're on the bedrock that doesn't move. Right? Because because God is our exceeding joy. Right? So, so, so if we were to lose him, then we would lose the source of our exceeding joy. Question, when do you not have the person of God in your life? Come on, tell me. Confidently, church, tell me. Never. If you're a believer, now if you're a non-believer, it's a different, it's a different story. But if you're a believer in Jesus, there's never a moment where the person of God is not literally with you. Okay, so, so if there's never a moment where we don't have the person of God, what moment in your life or what circumstance in your life or what situation in your life would joy be unattainable? And again, the answer is never. Now, I don't want to oversell this, but I also don't want to undersell it. Right, this is a lament. Life has been far from perfect for the psalmist. Right, we're broken, fallen sinners. We don't always choose righteously. So in one sense, right, I, I don't want to be fake or plastic and, and this kind of fake sense of joy and we just pretend like everything's okay. But here's the other side of this. I think sometimes we've just become uh, jaded and cynical that we miss the profound beauty in this statement. To God, my exceeding joy. Don't you get it? Nobody can take this from you. The government can't take this from you. Your work can't take this from you. Your school can't take this from you. Your family can't take this from you. Nobody can take this from you. They can't ever strip away the person of God from your life. Which means in no situation and no circumstance is joy unattainable or unavailable to us. 
The reason, listen to me, church, the reason so many of us don't have joy in our life is because we choose it, not because God is not present amongst us. It's because we choose to put our hope and, and, and our identity and our value and our worth and our affections into someone or something that can never do for us what only God can do for us. But right, even look at the process, right? 42 and 43, where he arrives at. I'm going to go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. Ah, oh, God, help us. God, help us. We'd be people filled with that same joy, that same hope as we see in him. Which, by the way, is what you see in each of the choruses. Right? So the chorus in 42.5, 42.11, and then here closing with it in 43.5. And it's that same vein. We were just talking about that. We will hope in God. That we're going to hope in God. Now, now, as you move through the Psalms, and one of the reasons I want to do this at the end is I wanted us to see some of the movement of the Psalm itself. Because the words of the chorus are identical. But I don't think how they're sung at the various points are identical. Uh, because, because the psalmist is, is, is changing and shifting. His confidence in God is growing and it's becoming more steadfast and sure. He's seeing things better and better for what they are. And so here, if I could, I don't know if this is actually the case. Here's what I think is going on. When you get to the first chorus, and my tears have been my food, and I, I miss what's going on. I, I think the volume of the chorus is predominantly in the first half. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then this faint whisper, open God. I shall, I shall again praise him, my, my salvation of my God. Not convinced. But, but, but trying to reason with himself. But as things continue, begins to shift, right? So by the time you get to the second chorus, it's a little more balanced, right? Not quite as loud is the being cast down. Not, not, not as quiet is the hope. And I think by the time you get to the end of uh, Psalm 43, it's a complete reversal, Right? Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Right? It's this faint whisper. It's this echo. And what screams out is, I'm going to hope in God. I am again going to praise him. He's my salvation and my God. It's this growing confidence, listen, in the Lord, not circumstances, in the Lord. Because the circumstances haven't changed. The only thing that has changed is his perspective on God. And as you think about this, as we consider this, let me just have you think about Jesus himself, because Jesus employed this same type of language in his ministry. In fact, on multiple occasions, Jesus used this same type of verbiage and language, maybe even was even thinking of Psalm 42 and 43. But I want you to flip over to John 12. I want to close in John 12. Flip over to John 12 for just a moment, where we see... Jesus, one of the places we see Jesus employing this. So in John 12, I want to start in verse 23. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you know anything about John's gospel, you know over and over and over again, Jesus said, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, it's not my hour. So when you get to John 12, 23, and he says, it's my hour, you're like, whoa, it's time. Now, jump down to verse 27 and 28. That's where I want us to finish. So we understand what's in view. Right? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is in view, given what we see in verse 23. So here's what Jesus says in 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled. He's talking like the psalmist, isn't he? Maybe even thinking of Psalm 42 and 43. 
and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, unlike the psalmist, Jesus is going to see and face alienation, but he's not going to shrink away from that. Unlike the psalmist, he's not going to shrink away from the overwhelming cost and the difficulty of the mission in front of him. He's not going to shrink away from the opposition and the mockery. He's going to suffer a far more dangerous torrent, raging torrent, than those rivers at the headwaters of the Jordan River. He's going to suffer under the torrent of the wrath of God, bearing the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And he's going to do all of that so that we would be delivered from the wrath that we deserve. Here's the connection. Jesus is cast down. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is, tur- is in turmoil so that you and I could hope in God our salvation. Isn't that awesome? It's beautiful. And so, loved ones, as you consider the troubles and the difficulties and the hardships that you are facing in your life right now, and as you you look at the turmoil in your soul and you see the ways that you are cast down, do so with your Savior in view, being reminded that you shall praise Him again because He faced what most troubled us, our sin. And He did so so that we could be reconciled unto God. Praise be to God for that. Let's pray.